Beloved congregation, the Lord Jesus Christ, in John chapter 10, we read of the Lord Jesus Christ saying, I give my life for my sheep. I lay down my life for my sheep. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. This power I have received from my Father. We find the Apostle Paul also in Galatians chapter 2 saying that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of Man who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice the giving of oneself for others. This is what we find in the Savior, Jesus Christ. He gives himself for his people. He gave himself to live in our place. He gave himself to die in our place. And both are necessary. This is the gospel. Not just that Jesus died for me, but that he lived for me. That he fulfilled all the demands of the law for me. That he also died for me. That he also suffered the wrath of God for me. These are aspects of the gospel. You could say that Christ died for me as an aspect of the gospel, but that's not the fullness of the gospel. That's like you asking somebody for a Bible and they give you a New Testament. That's not all of it. But you notice that involved in Christ living and dying for his people is himself giving himself to us, for us. We are those, as Paul says in Romans 8, that are being conformed into Christ's image. This is the covenant promise. That we are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, in our lives, we ought to be seeing this more and more of giving ourselves to others. It's what our life is about. It's about serving. It's about being a slave of Christ and a servant to mankind. Giving ourselves to one another. Now let me give you two other examples that we find as the, is a following of the example of Christ. Jesus says when he washed his disciples' feet, he told them to go and do likewise. This was being a servant. This was being a slave. This was giving yourselves to others. It was taking the lowly place. Boy, that's contrary to us, isn't it? It's contrary to the remaining sin that still dwells within us, that rebellion that doesn't want to serve, but to be served. We want people to serve us. We don't want to serve. But Jesus says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And give, again, give His life a ransom for many. So, being a friend... Who is the neighbor to the one who was overtaken by thieves? Parable of the Good Samaritan. So Jesus gives a demonstration of a man giving of himself to another. Notice, to one that he didn't even know. To a stranger. That he provided his finances, his time, his livelihood. To give to another who was in need. And Jesus asked that question, who then was the neighbor to the man who had fallen among thieves? 
Clearly, it wasn't the priest and the Levite who walked on the other side of the road, but the one who did well to the man. Go and do likewise. Go and do the same in like manner, in like kind. This is what we are called to do as those being conformed into Christ's image. So, Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 5, For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. For did we seek glory from men, and neither from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Now, think about what Paul is saying there, using the metaphor of how he saw the, 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 the Christians there in Thessalonica and how he treated them, how he viewed them. He looked upon them as if he was as a nursing mother uh, and how tenderly that she cared for her baby, for her infant, providing for the infant, protection, sustenance. Care, concern. There's not much time between where a mother and a child where she lets that baby out of her sight for quite a while as an infant. Constantly watching over and providing and caring and nourishing in this way. Paul says, this is the way I was to you in Thessalonica. That's what he says. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. There it is. This is the doing. This is putting feet to our faith. This is being involved in one another's lives. That I not only impart to you the teaching of God's Word and the call of the Gospel, but I give my life to you as well. How do I give my life? I give my life in service. I give my life in provision. I give my life in protection. I give my life in care. I give my life as a living sacrifice to Christ and a care for humanity. That's the calling of the believer. That's what you find Paul speaking to Philemon in our text this morning. Now, how often do you think of yourself in that way? You see, oftentimes what we do is that when there is a, a, a new convert, somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ, by the working of the Holy Spirit, the regenerating work of the Spirit, creating faith within, and they come from darkness to light, and we speak to them things, but we're not involved in their life. There's no discipling that goes on. There's no spending time with them, teaching, instructing, helping, encouraging, building up. Beloved, there's way too much of that that goes on, this giving something and running away. No, we are called to be involved. We're a body. We are to be involved in one another's lives for good. We're not only to speak into one another's lives the truth of God's Word, edifying, encouraging, putting to mind the truth of Scripture. But we are to be those that are involved, practically speaking, 
Giving, sharing, caring, providing, nourishing, edifying, protecting, all kinds of applications are given as we give ourselves to one another as the people of God, the people of Christ, the redeemed of Jesus Christ. Paul speaks to Philemon in the same way this morning in our text. He's dealing with Philemon about forgiveness. He's dealing with not only forgiving Onesimus, but in bringing him back. This would be a demonstration of true forgiveness. And this is something that would be hard to do for Philemon. Philemon is out money. He is out because Onesimus clearly would have had to have stolen from Philemon. Why do I say that? Because of the distance from Colossae, where Philemon and Onesimus were, to the city of Rome. It's over a thousand miles. In the ancient world, think about that travel. Onesimus would have had to have enough money to be able to traverse the land from Colossae to Ephesus, which was a port city. Then to board a ship and sail through the Mediterranean over to Greece, land in Corinth, board another ship on the other side of Greece, and then sail the rest of the way to Rome. Actually through Cilicia and then up to, you know, through Italy up to Rome. That would have been a great sum of money and a great amount of time that would have elapsed to travel in such, to such an extent in the ancient world. And you're not talking about getting on a plane and flying four hours across the country. Now, the problem with a lot of us is that we are looking at a, at a book that has Eastern origins and we're looking at it through Western eyes and we're trying to interpret the things of the ancient Eastern world with our Western mindset and, and we go off all the time. We're not talking about modern day travel. We're talking about walking, horseback, mules, carts, chariots, ships, not speedboats, sailboats, that if the wind was in your favor, that you might arrive at a certain destination in a certain time. If it was not, if you had a headwind, you'd have to sail then close to the coast, which would have had a danger all of its own, doesn't it? Maybe running aground. So, Philemon would have paid for Onesimus as a slave, so he'd have been out that money. Then the labor, and then having to purchase probably another slave to take the place of Onesimus, that finance, plus probably what Onesimus took when he left. Now all that can make you angry, can it? Now, the hyperpietists out there, the reality is there is enough residual sin in all of us to be angry with it. And rightfully so. You violated the commandments of God against you. The Bible doesn't say not to be angry. Paul says, be angry, but do not sin. 
Well, then I ask the question, when do I have a biblical, legitimate warrant to be angry? When someone violates the commandments against you. But you have no biblical warrant to sin against them. So forgiveness is a great virtue that can be difficult. I'm not talking about people who don't come and will not ask for forgiveness. I'm talking about those who do come and ask for forgiveness. Seven times even in a day. And Jesus said, you shall forgive them. So what is then forgiveness? Forgiveness is you and I saying, we won't take revenge. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. When you forgive, it's a promise that you will not take vengeance, revenge upon somebody. But the world teaches that, right? Don't get mad, get even. The getting even is revenge. The world says things like revenge is sweet. It's contrary to the ethic of Scripture. When we forgive somebody, we make a promise which is verbal. It is a use of words communicated to another. I forgive you. And latent in that is the promise not to take vengeance, revenge, and not to bring it up. You don't bring it up any longer. You cast it, even as the example given in Psalm 103, which we find from the Lord, that you cast the sins as far as the east is from the west. Never to be remembered against them again. You don't bring it up anymore. That is what you're promising. You don't bring it up to that person. You don't bring it up to somebody else. And you don't bring it up to your own mind. Because the continuation of bringing it up to your own mind is like picking at a scab. It'll keep on bleeding. And you think it's healing. It's not healing. You're not allowing it to heal. You keep bringing it up and it's fresh all over and over. And you begin stoking the fires of anger in your soul again when you have forgiven somebody. This is what Philemon is dealing with. Clearly it takes the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. We of ourselves cannot do this of ourselves, of our flesh. So we need to be prepared always to go to the Lord, preparing our hearts that we would not be bitter, taking revenge, or being those that can't keep our mouth shut. Because there's a lot of that. We are to guard against it by taking that to the Lord and confessing, being real. And the reality is we all have the propensity to rattle the tongue. We all have the propensity to not shut up, but to keep on and keep on and keep on and saying it far and wide and spreading it over and over and over. And then you are responsible, not only for the one that you told, but the one that told the next person, who told the next person, who told the next person, who told the thousandth person, that it all came from the origin of you. You're going to be responsible for that. God's going to hold you accountable for that. 
It's a great virtue. It's a great blessing to keep your mouth shut. To not talk. It's done. It's past. Let it go. I didn't say you can will to forget it. You, you can't. But do you ever notice something? That if I'm not rehearsing something in my mind continually, it's not fresh. I don't remember it as well. I'll give you an instance. What was the combination to your high school locker? You know, your first bicycle, you had a padlock. What was that combination? You know, your old homes, you know, as a kid, as a child. What was the address? What was the zip code? What was the area code for your phone? You, you move past that. You don't remember. You, you start thinking, oh, let me think about that. You really got to pull it up from the memory, don't you? That not how it's to be when we forgive somebody. That you really have to reach back if you're going to, to pull it up. Because you, you've put it back. You've buried it, as it were. That's what we need to do in forgiveness. Now, Philemon is dealing with this. Paul is dealing with him as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Therefore, Philemon, being a believer, is being dealt with by the Holy Spirit through the word of the apostle Paul, which is the word of the true and living God. Notice what Paul says. Notice how Paul gives an example of giving himself. Giving of himself to Philemon. He says in verse 18, but if he has wronged you, if, notice, but if. So Paul wasn't privy to what Onesimus had stolen, what all the financial loss that was encumbered by, by Philemon, but only that if, whatever the case may be, if he has wronged you, which means morally, temporally, it could be applied to a number of different things, could be financially, if he's stolen from you, he says he owes you anything, put that to my account. Now, this is what we find with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Did you notice that at the end, where the Good Samaritan goes off to do his business, he says to the innkeeper, and if he owes you anything when I return, I'll pay that too. I'll take that upon myself. That, that's giving of your life to others. And that's the call that we have as those redeemed of Christ. Paul reflects right here in this one verse the character of Jesus Christ. Because that's truly who is reflecting. Christ. Now let's think about that for a moment. We are those that deserve damnation. From the second pew, because there's nobody in the first, all the way back, and from the second pew, all the way back, and right here, we have earned damnation. We deserve damnation. And the Father, in His love, His grace, His mercy, sends forth the Son of His love to live and die in the place of that multitude which no man can number that was given to Christ that He would redeem. Christ then comes into this world, truly God, truly man, in one person, and in His human nature, fulfills the covenant of works in the place of all of His people. 
The Greek term huper, in our stead, on our behalf. He gave himself to us, for us. He fulfills what we have failed to fulfill, even to this day, that we have not fulfilled. We have not kept the commandments. Christ has kept them in our stead. And we are righteous now by the imputation of Christ's righteousness, even as Christ is righteous, all because of the love and grace of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus goes to the cross, and he gives himself for us on our behalf and exposes himself to the infinite wrath of God, to the inexpressible anguish, pains, and terrors of the cross. He absorbs all of the penalty, the punishment due to us. This is his descent into hell on the cross. As the Catechism speaks about that, we can't even express what Christ went through. Words come short of what he endured on our behalf because he gave himself to us. And then he was raised from the dead with a declaration from the Father that the work that Christ came to do, he accomplished. And the Father received that work. Christ rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven to his session. Seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling over all things for the glory of God and the good of his people. Christ gave, beloved, himself for us. Now let me ask you, how should you then live? What should be your attitude? With one here that had a debt that I could never pay. Christ says, I'll take that debt. I'll pay that price. And what he means by paying it is paying it in full. Is what Paul refers to. I will pay. I will repay. It means I will pay it in full. All that he owes. Christ has paid for his people all that we owe. We have the positive righteousness imputed to us. Christ takes our demerit. And he suffers in our place on our behalf for us. That we might not be made to suffer. At the end of the worship service, we have a benediction. It's the good word that God pronounces upon his people. It's not a prayer, it's a pronouncement of God's blessing upon his people. Why? Why do we have the good word? Why do we have the benediction? Because Christ took the malediction, he took the cursing of the covenant, he took that in our place, in our stead, on our behalf for us. Now, bring it full circle. And is you, you one who has been redeemed and forgiven because of another, because of Christ? You have been received into the family of God because of Jesus. You have been forgiven of all of your sins in a judicial sense because of Christ. And you're not going to forgive? You're going to live unforgiving? 
That Christ came and He gave Himself for us, gave His life a ransom for many. He lived and died in our place. He gave Himself to us. And you're not going to give yourself to the body of Christ? You're not going to manifest the love of Christ in that way? You're going to isolate yourself? You're going to be individualistic? You're not going to love in that manner as you have been loved? That's how we are to love. Ephesians 4, uh, we are to love one another even as God in Christ has loved us and forgiven us. We are living sacrifices. We are those to uh, give ourselves to the body of Christ, to the church. This is a demonstration of our love to Christ. This is what Paul is emulating here in this particular verse. If he's wronged you or owes you anything, put it to my account. I'll pay it. I'll absorb it all. And notice what Paul says in verse 19. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. This is akin to signing of a document. I put it in words. I put it in writing. This is my commitment. This is my promise. It's a promissory note. I promise to repay you fully. But then he says, I will repay. Notice what he says, not to mention. There's something else that we're leaving out. The Apostle Paul is bringing in. He says, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own life besides. Paul not only is referring to him giving himself an account of Onesimus, to provide for him, to, to take upon his debt upon himself. But he is referring also to what Philemon owes the Apostle Paul. It doesn't talk about some kind of financial transaction, but clearly what had happened is that the Apostle Paul's ministry is that by which Philemon came to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul gave himself to the preaching of the gospel, and that through that, Philemon came to the knowledge of the truth. And Paul says, you owe me your own self as well. Because that's what the body of Christ does, isn't it? We care. We provide. We share. We account. We give in this way for one another. We absorb things for one another. Now, we're not saviors. We don't save anybody from their sins. We don't absorb their sins. But you know what we can do? Love covers a multitude of sins. Understanding what's important and what's not important. Understanding what needs to be public and what is left to be private. There is that giving. There is that providing. Paul is dealing with Philemon in a personal matter, isn't it? It's really intimate. In a sense, he's saying, you know what I've done for you. And that I have done that for you, will you not do that for Onesimus? Who's repentant? Who's come to faith? He's a brother in the Lord. And he's returning. Notice that there is, uh, there is not only simply a confession of what he did, but there is also a providing of return for what was lost. He comes back as a slave, but more than a slave, but yet as a slave to continue in serving Philemon. 
There's a lot of love and a lot of forgiveness and a lot of remembrance of the going on of the work of Christ on our behalf and then how we respond to one another. And beloved, to our shame, we often don't think of that, do we? When somebody wrongs you, what's the first thing you think of? Vengeance? Revenge? Get them back? Use your little lips and just keep on prattling all around? Is that what you do? Is that what you think? Or do you first think about what Christ has done for you and how can I not forgive one who comes and asks for forgiveness? How can I not deal with him as a brother in Christ? How can I not go and deal with this? Strive to resolve. You know, there are some that you're not going to be able to do that. I get it. But those who are ready and who come, you have no warrant scripturally to hold a grudge. And yet so many people do. Verse 20, he says, yes, brother, let me have joy. Paul wanted to see the, the brothers walking in the truth. And that's what John says in 3 John. I have no greater joy than to see that my children are walking in truth. Fulfilling, living according to the teaching of God's word. They're living it out. You see, truth is practical, isn't it? It's not theoretical. It's not in the high and lofty and for only the initiated. It is for all of us to live. Truth is to be lived. We are to practice. We are to put it into practice. We are to be truth livers. We are to be truth speakers, truth tellers. We are to live the truth. So Paul was finding joy. He wanted that joy. He wanted his heart refreshed in the Lord. And notice that he says this in verse 7. He says, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. It's a high accommodation for Philemon. Philemon was a faithful brother. He was a refreshing brother. You ever been around refreshing people? You ever had a conversation, you walk away and say, that was refreshing. What do you mean by that, refreshing? It was reviving. It was that which stirred you up, stirred you to love and good works. Those are good and godly fellowship that revives, that stirs up. They don't talk about the weather. Talk about the ball game. Again, not unimportant, but not chief important, not Christian fellowship. That doesn't revive me. Especially if your team's losing, isn't it? That's depressing. Every time it's brought up, it's depressing. I don't want to hear that. We revive one another with the truth. You go to a funeral, what do you do? Revive, refresh. How do you do that? Speak the truth. There are so many harmful helpers that go to funerals. They don't know what to say. By default, they speak the things of the world. Beloved, speak the things of Christ. Remember the resurrection. Then that set your mind in a completely different vein than the way of the world. The resurrection. That this individual is coming out of the grave. The body is going to put on incorruption. The mortal is going to put on immortality. Death is going to be swallowed up. The soul is going to return and be united with that body. And we will ever be with the Lord. And we will say, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? It's been swallowed up by life in Jesus Christ. Speak, beloved, refreshing words, reviving words. That's what the parched soul needs, isn't it? And this is what Paul was confident that this would take place. Paul wanted to be refreshed. Paul needed to be refreshed. Beloved, we all need to be refreshed. But there's so many refreshing people. There's so little. 
Where are we? Where are we as reviving, refreshing people of bringing the truth, putting it to one another's minds, and helping one another, reviving one another, encouraging one another? Where are we? We're like little individual soldiers that are fighting a war all by ourselves in some faraway country that has no army in which we battle with. That's not the Christian faith. The Christian life is a together walk. It's not individualistic. It's together. We are a body, beloved. So refresh one another. Who have you refreshed this week? Looking around in this congregation, who have you refreshed? Who have you revived with words of truth? Because truth be told, only the truth of God's word applied by the spirit of truth revives and refreshes the soul. But who have you revived? Who have you refreshed? Paul says, I have confidence in your obedience. What a a wonderful thing to say about another Christian. I have confidence. In other words, I am confident that you will do what you're required to do. But not even that. You'll go above and beyond what you're required. What a commendation to another believer. This is, I, I think about Joseph. And the Potiphar knew this. Whenever he spoke in the name of the Lord, you could be sure. Joseph was speaking truth. He was not known as a liar because he spoke in the name of the Lord. Joseph brought the truth. And he was confident. That's why he wasn't put to death. Potiphar knew Joseph was speaking the truth about his wife. And so he was not put to death. But trying to compromise, please his wife, he put him in prison. And all with the design of the providential hand of God. But he was put there unjustly by man. But the ultimate and the proximate, God is ultimate even in the decision of man to fulfill his will no matter what man does. And this is the confidence. Paul was confident in Philemon's obedience. Would other people say that about you? They're confident in your obedience. They're confident that you would do the right thing. No matter what anybody says, we're confident that this is the truth. That they will do the truth. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Philemon was a a loving, kind, gracious, forgiving, providing. He was a man who had the church meet in his own home. He was a man who provided for the Apostle Paul. Maybe he provided for him financially. He was an owner of slaves. He was a wealthy man, but he was a generous man. He was a generous man, not only monetarily, he was a generous man spiritually. He was willing and ready and desiring to forgive. And he not only forgives, but he brings Philemon, or he brings Onesimus back. Restitution is paid by Onesimus. He wants to continue to provide service for Philemon, his master. And Philemon brings him to himself, forgives him, and views him now 
as a man redeemed in Jesus Christ. Think about the fellowship that they would have had. Think about the conversations that went on speaking about the things of the Lord. No longer worldly things. Now he's a man in Christ and he is so precious to the Apostle Paul. And so was Philemon and Paul to both of them. What a loving relationship of forgiveness and compassion and giving and mercy. All reflecting the great shepherd who came to live and die for us. Beloved, that being the case, give yourselves to one another to serve, to love, to care, to provide, that you might provide refreshment spiritually and revive one another with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Shall we pray?